This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're talking about what it's like to be a Goldman Sachs intern and how employers are trying to keep up with what younger generations want from a work environment. To do that, we're talking with two college seniors who interned at Goldman Sachs this past summer and will be returning as full-time analysts next year, as well as our own very own head of human capital management, Dane Holmes. Catherine, Rebecca, and Dane, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Jake. So this is for everyone. Briefly introduce yourselves. Where are you from? Where do you go to school? Or where did you go to school? And what part of the bank were you interning in this past summer? Dane, just give us a quick take on your role here at Goldman Sachs. Sure. So my name is Catherine Dorvitz, and I'm from about an hour north of the city in Putnam County. I'm a student at Baruch College here in the city, and I had the opportunity to intern in the securities division this summer, rotating on a few different teams within Prime Services. My name is Rebecca Shiner. I am a super senior at Yeshiva University, which is here in New York City, where I'm double majoring in accounting and finance. But I am from Chicago, and this past summer I was interning on the GS Bank LEC team and the controllers division here at the firm. I'm Dane Holmes, as was mentioned, the head of HR, I guess, in the small world of connections. I was born in Chicago. I went to University of Columbia in New York, so I don't know. We're all all connected <laughs> one way or another, and I'm responsible for all of our activities around people at the firm and leadership development. Okay, Dane, just to set some context, we collect a lot of insights from our interns when they're here over the summer. Why do we do that, and what do we get out of that experience of listening to our interns over the course of the summer when they're mm-hmm. here? Yeah, so uh, obviously we do. I'd use the old adage that you don't know what you don't know. And I think in a people-driven business, it's very normal to fall into the trap of saying, oh, I know what it was like. I was an intern. even though it years been, ago. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> might, have, might have been a long time ago when you're using an abacus. Um, but <laughs> it is really true that you don't know what you don't know. So part of it is getting the information. And what's great, I think, about the generation that we're seeing today and a lot of the people that were recruiting to the firm, into the firm, they're open and honest and very frank about how they're feeling about things and how they're looking at the world. So it's all about being informed. And fortunately, they're happy to share it with us. The intern class this summer was the most diverse to date. Talk a little bit about how that class is a reflection of what we're thinking and Mm -hmm. how we're thinking around diversity inclusion here at the firm. We think about diversity inclusion through a bunch of lenses. One is just, if you think about it from a pure or a business that serves clients and Whatever problem or issue we're usually solving some problem for one of our clients, what do we want? We want a diverse set of views in the room as we try and tackle whatever that problem is. And so some of that is a reflection of, frankly, just wanting to provide the best solutions to our clients. Another part is is that in our surveys with our interns, we hear that they want a diverse population around them. So part of it is reflecting the desire of also what the most talented people out there in the marketplace, the type of environment that they want to work in. And then, frankly, we have a core principle that we think about, which is meritocracy. And it's hard to argue that you have a fully fled meritocracy if you don't have diversity in the group of people that you're bringing in, because we've obviously proven time and time again that talent knows no boundary, whether it be you know gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation. So having a diverse class to me makes me feel very confident that the meritocracy is alive and well. One of the things we did learn from the survey is that 82% of our interns said it was important to develop managers that foster that kind of inclusive work environment. So how are we thinking about the forward strategy for diversity inclusion, particularly when it comes to training managers? 
all of this starts with, one, caring about developing our people, which means investing in them, investing your time, your knowledge, your energy. And so we're looking for our managers to do that. The other part is understanding them. And so we started this question with, why do we survey? It's a little bit to understand what drives them and what they're looking for. And in a lot of ways, that's to prepare our managers to deliver that to them as well. So managers play a critical role in developing our people and attaching them to the firm and making them effective. And the diverse population, what do you need to do? You need to make sure that you understand all the diverse perspectives that people have and where they come in. And you frankly just have to care, care about what matters to them, care about what they're looking to achieve and addressing that. And so, you know, it's resulted in a lot of education. We've put a lot of investment into our learning activities to make sure people understand the different perspectives that are out there. But we got to give people the base knowledge and then we got to make sure that they care and engage and invest in our people. Catherine, when you came here to work over the summer, does it feel more or less diverse than your schools? And what do you expect from managers in terms of how they can do a better job of making people like yourselves feel comfortable? Baruch, at least for me, is a very diverse school, but I would say that the difference here wasn't huge. I think Goldman's definitely making big strides in that direction. And I think something interesting just to think about in terms of managers kind of enforcing or implementing more of that diversity within their team, kind of what Dane mentioned a little bit about different perspectives kind of coming in from those diverse experiences, I think is important to think about. So when I think about diversity, I don't just think of race, ethnicity, religion, maybe I'm thinking more about kind of what have those experiences taught a person? What skill sets have they brought from there? And I think that's an interesting thing to think about in the workplace, given that different experiences will transfer into different skills and different ways that a person can add value to a team. So my experience with diversity at the firm is that the firm is much more diverse than my school, Yeshiva University. But that said, I think that within the firm, managers can best encourage and foster diversity and inclusion by using it as an invitation to conversation. Because I've always thought of diversity as something so much larger than simply checking off boxes. Like Catherine said, I think you have something to learn from everybody around you. And while maybe easier or more natural to start that conversation with someone who seems more similar to you at the outset. I think it's equally, if not more important to start those same conversations with the people who seem different than you are. Because in my experience, the more you speak to the people who seem to be different than you, the more you realize that you have a lot in common. And I find that you come away having learned something. And I think there's something really, really valuable in that. So both of you studying finance, as you were thinking about how to choose the next step of your career after school, what were the things that led you to Goldman and what were the attributes you're looking for in a future employer? I think for me, it was really the people. That was the first thing that I was looking at. So I had a wonderful experience with all of my interviewers. And that was kind of the initial step that made me realize that Goldman was going to be a fantastic place to work. And I actually had the unique opportunity of interning here for two summers in a row. And that's exactly what I've experienced. The people are incredible, overwhelmingly supportive and helpful. I've always found that there's something you can learn from everyone sitting on either side of you. And I think there's definitely something to be said about never being the smartest person in the room. There's always something you can learn from every single person at Goldman Sachs. For sure. In addition to studying finance, I'm also studying accounting. So last summer, I interned in a public accounting firm, and it just wasn't for me. So coming into this past summer, I wanted to try something a little new, which is what led me to controllers. Actually, long story how I ended up here, but I guess in sum, I am really here due to the alumni from my school who really stepped up and became mentors to me and guided me this way, and I'm so thankful to them. But how I ended up at Goldman Sachs, I mean, I think the name really speaks for itself because it truly is synonymous with excellence. And that was my experience. Over the summer, whenever I was asked how my experience was going, 
I would explain that I felt challenged all around. Challenged in that I was applying the things that I learned in school to my work on a daily basis, which is rewarding in and of itself. Challenged in that I was furthering the things that I learned and realized how much more I had to learn. And challenged because I was surrounded by the most impressive people. And as incredible as my team is at what they do, they were equally as incredible as welcoming me as part of the team and of teaching me about my role and what I needed to do in order to succeed. And they really saw to it that I was successful. And to me, that meant a huge amount. So, Dean, when we talk about work-life balance, it means different things to different people. And this is one of the questions we ask the interns. It's interesting, 62% of the interns associate it with spending time with friends and family. Only 17% associate with disconnecting at the end of the day, which when I was that age, that's what I was about, (laughs) disconnecting at the end of the day. uh, (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So it's different. It's unique for each person. It can mean flexibility. It can mean time. Always helpful to understand it. What does it mean to you? So I'm not surprised now I found the pure synergy between me and most interns. For me, it's family and friends a lot, too. (laughs) But what's interesting, I think... For me, when I think about flexibility around life, it's having the space to live your life intentionally around the things that matter to you. And I know there's this whole debate, oh, can you have it all or not have it all? I say to people who have a problem with saying, oh, you can have it all. I'm like, well, you're just not creative enough because there's a lot of things in the word all. (laughs) And and so to me, you know, work-life balance starts with my family. I'm obviously a husband and a father. And my wife, I guess, semi-chose me. My kids didn't. Uh, So I have an obligation. Uh, I have an obligation to uh, to them. Yeah, so unfair. So they have a burden I have to live up to. And I care a lot around my community, particularly around African-American boys. I also care a lot about a lot of the friends that I've had growing up. And, you know, people go through challenges in their life. So being able to be there when that matters and invest in those things is really, really important. And the part that's been interesting for me at being at the firm, I've been actually able to intertwine some of that together where some of those investments, whether with my family or whether it be in some of my charitable activities have been, you know, amplified as a result of being at the firm. And so that's actually created a unique synergy. We sometimes think of these things as one or the other, but a lot of times there's a little inter- twining of the two. But for me, if I can look at architecture and design books, that's that was my major, that's in, college. major in college. Yeah, yeah. I can spend time with my kids, teasing them as much as possible, make my wife think I'm amazing, intelligent, brilliant, funny, good looking. <laughs> that's quite then a feat. I, that one takes the most work of all. <laughs> um, then, then I'm pretty good. So how about for you? What does work-life balance mean when you think about entering the workforce full-time? And, and what could employers be doing better to support healthy lifestyles? I think for me, I'm one of that 17%, so I would definitely put a focus on being able to disconnect from work just because I don't think you can be fully present with friends and family and kind of pursuing your different passions if your mind is always at work and Mm -hmm. in order to make sure you're not burning out and you can kind of come into work the next day, really add value to your team every single day, it's important to find that time to disconnect at the end of the day in order to kind of foster that sort of environment, making sure that there is a work-life balance. It's important for managers to kind of just be on the lookout for. Mm -hmm. Is there somebody who's constantly working really late hours or coming in on weekends, working from home every day, and kind of identifying that before there might be a case of burnout, for example, just to make sure that 
every person on the team really does have that time to themselves to disconnect and to pursue their passions and what's important to so them. So the employer needs to just say, go home, <laughs> get out of here, stop <laughs> <At> working. <times>. <laughs> <laughs> I've been known to do that. <laughs> How about you? Um, I similarly am part of that 17% that answered that um, work-life balance means to be able to disconnect at the end of the day, because I view work-life balance as being able to maintain your priorities, but not neglecting yourself in the process. One of the things that I like to do is read for pleasure, and I won't let myself do that unless I finished reading my textbooks for the day. So being able to read for pleasure at the end of the day says to me, like, you did it right. But besides <laughs> that, you know, I'm artistic, so I like to draw, I like to crochet, I also cook, and I love having friends over, and my friends all know that, and they take advantage. So, you know, we're <laughs> weekends of classes, and my room has already been rebranded into Hotel 2C. But those are all things that are important to me. So when I approach my day, I try to make sure to weave those both in so that, again, I'm maintaining my priorities without neglecting myself in the process. And I think that managers should encourage that among their teams as well. Everyone has the things that they're passionate about. So I explain what those are in my case. For other people, it might be, you know, playing on a sports team, for example. And I think managers should encourage people to pursue those things that are important to them. Like Catherine said, so that you don't find yourself with a case of burnout because when you feel the best, think you perform the best. You know what the funny thing is about this conversation? So now I feel like them. So maybe I'm like a 17 percenter that is directing <laughs> it towards the 62. But one thing that I found, and it's one of the amazing things which you all reference about a lot of the people who work here at Goldman Sachs. When I think of disconnect, I think of non-movement. And my guess is you crochet like a world-class crocheter. Um, <laughs> and when you cook, you cook a mean meal. And oh, when I you're with your so. family, you're with your family intensely. And so uh, that's the one thing that I found is people definitely have uh, passions and things away from the office. So in that sense, I really agree with disconnecting. Certainly I do. But what I found, which has been one of the interesting things in connecting with a lot of the people, especially some of the younger generation at the firm, when I ask them, what are they doing when they're away from their office? They're doing something else passionately. They're not sitting back and hanging out. They're kind of doers, which is inspiring. Makes me feel like I need to do more. <laughs> we all need to do more. <laughs> One of the interesting things in the survey is interns say brand loyalty much more important than product loyalty. So the very conscious of brands and the impact brands have in the world. How does that change, that kind of evolution of consumer behavior change the way we think about recruiting people, yeah. about the, how we approach campuses differently. Yeah. And if I were to use different language in it from a recruiting perspective, I would say product loyalty is like role responsibility. I'm going to hire you to this job, right? That's like right. the product. And brand is I'm hiring you to this firm. And part of the importance is, well, what does that brand stand for, that brand mean? And certainly for us, there's a lot around what our purpose and our impact in society is as one of the core questions that we've done that. So when we think about how we're recruiting today, we're much more trying to help people see where their alignment of their skill set is to potential jobs within the firm. And we're often presenting it as there's not just one, there can be multiple. So you're joining a firm, you're not just joining a role. And we spend a lot of time talking to them about what the impact is that the firm has in the broader society as, uh, hey, I want to attach myself to that brand and what that brand means and the impact and the positive results that it drives in the world. And I think that's fundamentally different from where recruiting was before, which was some version of, let me tell you what position I'm hiring you for, and let me tell you what you're going to do in the first six months and the second six months, which is very like kind of product or role-oriented. So it certainly has changed how we approach it. Yeah. Is that a fair characterization of the way you think about the choices that you're making? 
Definitely agree. I know that if something were to happen and my team, let's say, disappears in the next year, I know that I still want to work at Goldman Sachs. I wasn't here specifically for the one team, although I do love my team and I'm very excited to be returning there. <laughs> Let the record reflect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think there's definitely something to be said about kind of the strength of the name of Goldman Sachs and, and the people and kind of just the quality of working in a place like Goldman Sachs. I think kind of going back to that brand versus product loyalty, I can definitely say that I'm one of those people who focuses a little bit more on the brand loyalty. And I think it's important to kind of know who you're working with, know who you're dealing with. Rebecca? As it relates to, you know, my habits as a consumer, I can't say that I identify with product loyalty or brand loyalty. And it's so interesting because I'm taking a marketing class this semester. And the first topic that we've actually started discussing is the economics of brand loyalty. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that for me, it comes down to price and quality more than it comes down to a specific brand or a specific product because I could think of examples in my life where I lean toward a brand. I can think of examples in my life where I lean toward a product. And I can think of examples in my life where I lean toward one that's not intentional at all. Yeah, and when you have three kids like myself, you lean towards whatever is going to make them think you're cool. That's it. That's all, that's all you're going for. <laughs> uh, my kids are still young enough to think anything I do by definition is cool. But, but I know a new day is coming soon. So one of the things our interns spotlighted was that they thought AI or artificial intelligence is going to have the most profound global impact of any trend that we're seeing over the next 10 years. It's interesting because a lot of times that's sort of seen as a displacer of some work in any case. But how is it shaping the future of our business and how we think about it? If you take a step back and think about AI as being a tool, just like the Internet was a tool or cars were a tool or television. Or the fax machine. Yeah, the fax machine, exactly, (laughs) which you guys don't remember, but that little waxy, waxy, rolly paper. That was one uh, of the first tools I learned to use in my first job. When you think of it as a tool, and whenever you have any tool, you know, whether it was the auto and the first the horse, there's always disruption, and there's always some pain with that disruption. But if you take a step back, it's a tool, and usually the tool takes precedent over the pre-existing tool because it's better, and it allows you to have a bigger impact. As a result, introducing the car didn't get rid of transportation. It just made transportation more efficient, quicker, faster, more effective. And so I think over time, we'll see AI the same way. It will make certain aspects of the business and there'll be disruption in that. But it'll also create a whole new series of other jobs and opportunities for us to do because we'll now have a better tool. When I think about this just narrowly in the space of people, I think it would be better to have a better tool to think about how we recruit. I think it's great, and you know, we do this now where somebody says, these are the things that I'm interested in, and we say, hey, these are the jobs you should look at. That's good as opposed to running randomly the chance that you happen to be in the room interviewing with someone who has a great understanding of your skill set and how those apply to maybe a job. So Rebecca, Catherine, you're digital natives. Your whole lives have been intertwined with the latest and greatest technology. How do you think about the role technology plays in your work life or just your life more generally? Or do you think about it at all? You just take it for granted. I would definitely say we take it for granted. We did grow up with technology, so we never kind of had an experience of, oh, we can't get on the internet. We can't do something that technology really helps us with on a day-to-day basis. But I really do think about it more in an academic capacity. I think it was introduced to me at the high school level of kind of how can we use technology to be more efficient. A lot of different tools about whether it was submitting an assignment, working on an assignment, all kind of focused on that efficiency, making sure that we're able to kind of get what we need to get done quickly and efficiently. And that's kind of continued throughout college. 
Yeah, Dane, I think your take on AI as something that's going to enhance what we currently have is quite comforting because that means that my job is not going to be replaced. <laughs> but um, to answer your question, Jake, as much as I really have grown up with technology, I have also grown up watching technology change. I totally remember the old stuff. Yes, I know what a fax machine is. <laughs> um, so I think that now it's really a matter, for me at least, of recognizing that there's a time and a place for technology because it is an incredible tool for connecting us. I mean, I cannot imagine doing a research paper without Google. I do not know <laughs> what our parents did. But it's also a really powerful tool for enhancing my relationships, keeping me connected to my friends, but also keeping me connected to everything going on with school. I think you really do have to recognize that there's a time and a place. So when I'm studying, my phone is on silent. If I really, really need to get things done, my phone is off. When I go to sleep, my phone is often in another room because I recognize that it is an incredibly powerful tool when used correctly, but it's also an incredibly distracting tool when you don't use it correctly. I think a lot of people sometimes think millennials and Gen Zs expect to spend a lot of different time with a lot of different employers. But the survey said, at least, maybe it's just the Goldman Sachs interns, that 92% of the interns expect to work for five or fewer employers in their lifetime. So, Dane, does that square with what we're seeing in the workplace? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting comment because I do think, you know, this is the danger of whenever you have generalizations, you have generalizations around a certain group and you say this is what they want. This particular one about moving around, I really think of it from a different lens, which is, frankly, we just have a group of people entering the workforce who have power more power than previous generations. And so that's led at times for people to move around because they have the ability. They know where the jobs are, there's people actively recruiting them and they can and they have that option. Versus earlier generations who, you know, uh, most of the people when I came out of college were just like literally the goal was to get a job. Like, not, not, like, 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 when somebody said, where do you want to work? That was a weird question. It was like, what city do I want to work in? Not what company, you know? So when I look at this, I also think this is a generation that saw people in their family go through the financial crisis and the recession. And so there's a desire to have stability there that's embedded in them. In most cases, it's been interesting. The things that I view the new generation wanting are frankly things that I think most people wanted. They just weren't empowered to actually get it. And now they're a little bit more empowered to get it than they were in the past, and so they're executing. But I don't think it's fundamentally, in that sense, fundamentally different. Any thoughts on that topic? Well, I think kind of going back to our, our point earlier about brand loyalty versus product loyalty, I think I kind of look at this topic in the same way in which I'm a little bit more focused on the broader organization that I'm working for and reputability of that organization, kind of knowing the people that I'm going to be sitting next to every day. I'm definitely part of that pool that would like to work for five or less companies in my lifetime, thinking back to that brand loyalty. Rebecca? So I think there's a lot of room to pivot careers or transition within the firm, and that goes back to what you said about brand loyalty. So I'm not terribly surprised by that result. I also answered that I would like to work for five employers or fewer. I am very happy to have a job. I like job security. I think those are all very good things. So Dane, just finished summer vacation. You're a big reader. What did you read? So I'm just actually finishing a book, The Road to Character by David Brooks, which I find fascinating about what, you know, really drives character in people, what creates these traits and how often... The pathway to tremendous characters, tremendous flaws and failures in advance. So it's been a really good read. And I'm also reading Homo Deus as the fall on Homo sapiens. We'll see if I still feel as good about AI after that. <laughs> I've started that path as well. How about you? You're a big reader. 
Uh, yeah, I do like to read. I just finished a novel called The Time In Between by Maria Duenas, and now I am reading a book called The Ones We Choose by Julie Clark. I read a lot of historical fiction. My favorite is The Book Thief by Marcus Susak that I recommend highly. Catherine, any book recommendations? So I don't know yet if I'll recommend it, but I have Lean In as the next one on my list. Okay. Um, I actually have a long <laughs> flight ahead of me this weekend, so that will be what I'll be cracking open. <laughs> so senior year, what class are you most looking forward to? So I actually have the unique opportunity to study abroad this fall. I'm going to be leaving for Berlin this weekend, and I'm okay. going to be taking an international economics course out there. So I think that's going to be a, a really interesting exposure and kind of lens through which to study economics. What class are you looking forward to? So I'm actually graduating in January, but until then, I'm really looking forward to my business law class. This is my third time taking a class given by this professor. I think he's really, really excellent. He does a really good job of tying in what he teaches to our lives and showing us how it becomes applicable because everything he teaches really is so practical. I guess also my dad is an attorney. So I grew up listening to all this stuff at our family's dinner table. So there's something about being in class that's really reminiscent of being at my family's dinner table. And I love that. A lot of optimism. I love that. And energy in the room. What are you most optimistic about or most hopeful for in the future? Despite all the discussions that go on on all the problems in the world, when I go 30,000 feet up, I think people have more information that they ever had. People feel more connected than they ever had. People's goals and aspirations are more aligned than they've ever been. Not to sound like I'm on the set of The Matrix, but I feel like the singularity (laughs) is coming in a way that, you know, hopefully over time, people will move toward the state of being where we focus on the 90% that binds us first, the 10% that separates us. Like, I just think understanding what's going on in the world and the the shared humanity of it is what I'm kind of most optimistic about. Rebecca? Something that I'm passionate about is people believing in themselves and actualizing their true potential because I think that everybody has what to give. And, you know, you mentioned that you're um, about to read Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. I actually read that book just before starting my internship, my professor's recommendation. I do think that her book is an incredibly important work in the way that she empowers women to do just that, to believe in themselves and to actualize their full potential. And I look around me and I see where I landed professionally and I see where my friends landed professionally. And there are a lot of really impressive firms on that list. And I think what's even more impressive is that none of us thought twice that this is where we're supposed to be. Because at this point, that's a given to us. We can do whatever we want. And it's crazy to me to think that, you know, even a generation ago, that wasn't necessarily the case. So I am optimistic that going forward, people will just empower themselves, not just women, men and women, really anybody. And we live in a world where technology is such a powerful tool in the way that it connects us. And I think the impact that people building each other up is greater than anything that we can even imagine. Excellent. Yeah. So I actually want to bring it back to our conversation about AI and technology. I think for me, that's what I'm most optimistic about and excited to kind of see what's going to change in the years to come. I think it's really interesting to kind of be at the forefront of these different disruptions in technology. And having grown up with technology, we kind of are seeing the entire life cycle almost of it. And I think coming into Goldman Sachs next year as a full-time analyst, it might be a really interesting kind of environment in which to see some of these changes slowly uh, kind of starting to come in. All right. Well, thank you all for joining so much. Thank you, Steve. 
Catherine, Rebecca, good luck finishing your school. We look forward to seeing you next year. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. Um, and Dane, I'll see you around the office. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> that concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and comment. And for more from Goldman Sachs experts, as well as influential policymakers, academics, and investors on market-moving topics, be sure to check out our new podcast, Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, hosted by Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in the firm's research division. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on September 3rd, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.